Well, thank you very much for your welcome. Um, I must say that it is uh, very pleasant indeed to turn to these historical subjects and turn away from such matters as appointments to the Board of the National Rivers Authority and statutory water quality objectives, the quality of rivers, um, and other such matters which may or may not uh, excite your interest uh, here in the Northeast. It is a very real uh, pleasure, though, for me to come and uh, address this subject here and uh, also to be obliged to uh, devote my mind over the last month or so uh, to this particular subject. I find it very refreshing to turn to historical subjects uh, after all the other things that uh, press in on my life, and it is a genuine uh, pleasure and hobby, if you like, uh, to be able to uh, prepare and to speak about them. I'm inclined to think uh, of the other James Bond. We've learned a new James Bond, haven't we, over the last few days? James Bond Stockdale, who said, Who am I and why am I here? And my hostess very politely, much more politely, more or less asked that question of me uh, during our meal just now. And uh, if I say to you that uh, before I was a civil servant that uh, I wrote a, a doctoral thesis in 19th and early 20th century British history, that might reassure you, just reassure you, uh, that I have some credentials to speak on this subject, though, of course, we all know, don't we, that uh, with historians, uh, it's usually not their period, and uh, the period they do are alleged to know about is, in fact, very uh, narrow indeed. So I hope that I have some small credentials um, to uh, address this subject this evening. I was struck by one verse from the chapter that we read together and that caused me to ask for it to be read. I'm sure that the 7th Earl of Shaftesbury would have approved of the reading of this chapter in uh, introduction to a talk about his life uh, and his ministry. The verse that struck me was the 12th verse of James chapter 2. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. It brings together a number of uh, thoughts of the 19th century, of 19th century evangelicalism. And one of the things I shall want to uh, uh, establish with you, I hope, is that in many ways the Earl of Shaftesbury was quintessentially the 19th century evangelical, that he displayed in his long life many of the, the attributes of the evangelical, the characteristics or the best characteristics of evangelicalism in the 19th century, and also some of the evolution, the way in which evangelicalism changed in the 19th century. And that this verse draws together some of the, the, the basic thoughts, the underlying principles. Speak and act, two things brought together, not just speaking, but acting as a result uh, of one's Christian faith, as those who are about to be judged, and not judged by the law, not judged by the old law, but judged by the law that gives freedom, judged by the law of the gospel, 
a higher law than that of the old covenant. Thought I'd draw that verse to your attention as we begin. I begin with the bibliography, partly because that will get neglected at the end, because inevitably uh, we shall find ourselves, or I shall find myself, short of time, I dare say, uh, towards the end of what I've got to say. So it may be useful to deal with the bibliography first, because otherwise it might get neglected. There is a vast literature, and the, uh, the uh, undergrowth of literature about Shaftesbury is, uh, and the uh, 19th century evangelicalism gets thicker and thicker with the passing years. Certainly the articles in the learned journals do, as well as the massive texts that people produce and somehow imagine that they are going to be able to sell. It's a curious thing about our generation that we speak of television ruining reading, and yet more and more books are published Uh, And apparently, I suppose, read, though I've got quite a few on my bookshelf, I must say, that I have not read. Uh, There is a vast literature, and this just picks out some uh, examples. Uh, I have divided it into two sections. Uh, The first part are biographies. Uh, Edwin Hodder is the classical biography, the official biography, and I want to draw a quotation from it right at the end of what I'm going to say, written at the time and with the authority of uh, Anthony Ashley Cooper, 7th Earl of Shaftesbury. A more modern biography, vast in its uh, pages by Finlayson, and uh, this one by Hammond, uh, a biography of uh, a former generation, the leading social historians uh, of their generation in commenting on Shaftesbury. Down here, some other works which may be of interest to you. Two, because the first and the last I draw attention to. One, the first one because it focuses on the character of early 19th century evangelicalism. Very interesting, extremely well-written book. This is one of the easiest historical reads you're ever going to have. Uh, Ian Bradley's The Call to Seriousness. Clyde Binfield writing about dissent, about nonconformity. Uh, a series of essays, really, much more difficult style, I have to say, to get into uh, without disrespect uh, to him, but nevertheless, an extremely interesting book. Owen Chadwick, the classic history of the established churches or the denominational churches. Um, This book, extremely interesting book, rather old now, 30 years old, but very much focusing on what evangelicals actually did by way of social reform in the middle part of the 19th century. Jeffrey Best is a very interesting background history uh, to the period which surveys uh, the social and economic history rather than the political history of uh, mid-19th century Britain and an extremely interesting book, uh, though much more specialised, Uh, of statistics, really, on the growth of the church and particularly of evangelicalism uh, in the 19th century. I'll put that up again perhaps afterwards um, if people uh, are interested in that and turn, if I may, uh, to the the subject for the evening.
what I want to do is to try to set, in these first 20 minutes or so of what I've got to say, to try to set Shaftesbury in his historical context, regard that as a very important uh, thing to do. It's very easy to uh, speak about biography without taking account of the historical context, very easy to write biography, which is simply hagiography, which is treats its subject as a kind of saint who can't be challenged in any particular way. Now, I have no doubt that Shaftesbury was a very great saint. He may not have qualified for beatification by Roman Catholic standards, in that as far as I'm aware, he did not perform any miracle, at least a miracle of physical healing or, or, or something like that. So you could argue that he did, in fact, perform prodigious, prodigious miracles uh, in another respect. But it would be very easy to write that kind of, or to give that kind of um, eulogy, really, of Shaftesbury. I don't intend to do that. What I intend to do is to try to set him in his context and, I hope, explain why he had some of the, the took, took up uh, some of the positions that he uh, took up. And in doing so, I want to emphasize that we have a tendency to think that comparatively recent periods are really very much like our own. The fact is, however, that especially since the Industrial Revolution, things change more quickly than that. We live in a, an age which tends, uh, apparently to us anyway, perhaps it's just a sign that I am beginning to get older, uh, 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 we live in a time when things, to ch things seem to change more and more rapidly. And I believe that gives us rather uh, an interesting relationship to the early 19th century. I was thinking earlier today that I was born in 1942, and only a 100 years before that, Shaftesbury still had in front of him most of the main work of his life, only a 100 years before I was born. The way I was brought up to think of history, these events are really current affairs. They're not uh, history at all. But the fact is that we both, it is easy for us both to think that we understand this world that is only 150 years away for, from us, indeed less than 150 years at the end of Shaftesbury's career. It's very easy for us to think that we understand this world. And what I want to assert by way of background is that we understand it in some ways that it is a world which we could, if we were translated back into it, a world which we would quite readily understand in some respects. But that on the other hand, in other important respects, it's a world which we would not so readily understand. There are features of the early 19th century where we are really eons away from where they were. So I want to look at Shaftesbury as a model, if you like, of evangelical social action. But, uh, but even in using the word social action, that rather narrows Shaftesbury down. The range of Shaftesbury's actions were much greater than simply to, to categorize him as a social reformer or somebody who was involved in social action and social activity.
Shaftesbury is at the hinge of change, as I would see it, in the 19th century. You're going to have a lecture about, or a presentation about Wilberforce, I think, on your next occasion. Well, I don't know what the the person is going to say who's going to speak about Wilberforce, but it seems to me that incontrovertibly, Wilberforce belongs to a different political era from from our own, even from that of Victorian society. He belongs, it seems to me, his actions rested within the unreformed political system of old England. In his early election addresses, Shaftesbury asserted that he came before them as a candidate, as a Tory candidate, as a representative of old England and as a supporter of the old political system, the traditional institutions of old England. But the longer Shaftesbury's career went on, the deeper his career, the deeper he got into his career, I think we see that what his career represents is essentially a kind of interesting bridge between the old, unreformed England and the modern political system as it developed. At the beginning of his career, we have the Great Reform Act of 1832. Some... uh, 45 or so, uh, 35 or so years later, we come to 1867 and the Reform Act when the urban male working class received the vote. And then in the final year of his life, in 1885, there was the enfranchisement of the agricultural male laboring classes. And towards the end of his career, there took place some very important political legislation the Ballot Act, which Shaftesbury hated and spoke against because of it, he actually had reasons of principle to oppose secrecy in political action. That seems very surprising to us, I think. And that is why, what I mean when I say that some, in some ways this era is, we are light years away from it where we are now. And also, of course, there took place at that time uh, changes which were designed to remove opportunities for political corruption uh, in the political system. These were key changes. And Chartres lived through those changes. His career spans these very deep political changes. And his career represents very much the response of an independent aristocratic representative of old England, how he responds to these, the demands of this rapidly changing political, social, and religious development. He had to learn to operate in what was increasingly a new system, increasingly a system that he had not grown up with, and increasingly a system that he wasn't really by principle in sympathy with, in any way at all. He had to learn to operate in a system in which party, political party, with principles and structure, had taken the place of faction or circle 
And party was, during this period, becoming more and more important as the determinant of political action and political power and political influence, rather than faction or circle. We shall see in a moment some ways in which Shaftesbury's influence depended on those old principles of faction or at least circle, as he used his contacts, and he had some very important ones, to influence political action. And it was perhaps for this reason that he achieved perhaps more in his, the early part of his career in many respects than he achieved in the latter part of his career by way of social reform and political action. Splendid building this is, no clock. Um, good for the lecturer, but not necessarily good for the um, audience. That is the political context in which he worked. I want now to refer to the socio-economic context of his career. Because this is a, a, an England that is changing, and I want to emphasize some of the ways that it is changing. Notice how carefully I use the word England and not Wales and Scotland. You are, this is a world still, uh, perhaps people would like to assert even more so today, but this is a world in which England, uh, Wales and Scotland have different histories and different political histories and social histories from those of England. And so I, I speak very much of the English context. But some of these features were being experienced by Wales and Scotland as well. First of all, this is a rapidly growing uh, England, an England in which popul population is accelerating enormously quickly. At Shaftesbury's birth in 1801, a census year, I think I'm right in saying the first official census of population uh, in uh, Great Britain, the population was 9.4 million. In 1851, it was nearly 21 millions. In 1881, just before its de his death, it was about 30 millions, a population which had tripled uh, in his lifetime. So here is, a is just simply the basic brute fact of growing population. But note that life expectancy was still comparatively short. Note, too, the threat of death which was ever-present to Victorian society, which accounted for Victorian religious melancholy in many ways, and lots and lots of undiagnosed depression, of course. I think Shaftesbury actually suffered from that kind of depression himself uh, to some considerable extent, and he was certainly a workaholic. One uh, has, can only stand in amazement at the, the number of things that he managed to do in his lifetime and the number of pies in which he had fingers. In this sense, he was the very epitome of the evangelical activist, uh, a kind of perpetual motion machine. Um, some of our charismatic brethren and sisters in current generations would have found him highly unsatisfactory in his activism uh, to get things done. Remember that text from James about speaking and acting as being characteristic of 19th century evangelicalism. It was a rapidly urbanizing society. Between 1840, uh, 1841 and 1851, the population of what was defined as urban areas of England and Wales uh, overtook 
the population of the urbanized areas overtook the population of rural areas. This was the first country in which this happened in the world. It happened much earlier in England and Wales as a result of industrialization than in any uh, other country. This wasn't just a question of the health of towns on which Shaftesbury laid such emphasis himself. It was also the way in which, because of economic circumstances, population was being sucked into towns. In a very real sense, towns were not uh, exploding. They were imploding. Population was being sucked into towns. The population of these urban areas was 48% in 1841 and 54% of the total in uh, 1851. And they were growing at a rate of some 25% a decade at this period. But, and this is an important point because we should not overdo it, there were in 1851 only 10 conurbations in England and Wales where the population exceeded 100,000. London was different, already had a population of 2.5 million. But in many areas, what we are describing is population being sucked into groups of villages, not into cities, not even into conurbations. In Birmingham, in, uh, in the black country, in southeast Lancashire, and in the West Riding, at this stage, what, you're, what you've got in, what you've got is really a set of villages which are growing rapidly in their population. It was a rapidly industrializing society, depending particularly on textiles and on iron and on the raw materials, the quarrying uh, and the mining of the raw materials on which those industries depended. But again, we should not overdo the rate of change. This is vitally important to the backdrop of um, Shaftesbury's factory legislation. We should not imagine that the industrialization of the factories which we are describing are like the factories of Charlie Chaplin's modern times. These were quite small factories in general. With relatively, with numbers of workers, it is true, numbered in the thousands, but not generally in the tens of thousands. What we are describing is a manufacturing sector of small and independent union, units where craft and piecework dominated in many sectors until late in the 19th century. This is an age of small masters, which explains why modern mass trade unions did not appear until the end of the 19th century after Shaftesbury's death, as a matter of fact. Curiously, in Shaftesbury's life, there is comparatively little reference to unionization or even combination of working people, to use the earlier phrase. This was a thing which I have not noticed him referring to or writing about. And this is highly relevant to Shaftesbury's social legislation. We, it is this backdrop of small masters where there was still a relationship between individual small masters and the employed. And so when you have the Royal Commission on, one of the Royal Commissions on Mining writing, I think in the 1840s or even in the 1830s, 
You have an individual witness describing, I work for Adam Bolton in a pit in such and such a place. You see the kind of small master-servant relationship which still existed. Another important fact to notice about the mid-19th century is that the one really growing area, one of the really growing areas of employment was in fact domestic service. Reflecting the economic growth, which we'll come on to mention in a moment. But when you uh, improved in the world, and as the middle class grew, you didn't have the option of buying a washing machine. You hired somebody to do the washing uh, and all the other things. So this is an area in which uh, greater uh, living standards, at least for some, meant an opportunity for domestic labor for other people. Of course, it is... Uh, further um, a um, platitude to say that this is an age of transport, first of all canals, but then the railway age. And this brought a transformation too, at least for the upper and middle classes, not for the working classes. In London, it was the, there were railway trains with, uh, with, with uh, fares that were limited, but there were commuters in London but uh, working-class commuters, but not virtually anywhere else uh, in the country at all. The people who commuted and began to commute first of all were the masters uh, and the middle classes as as railways gave them the opportunity uh, to commute and created the possibility of a suburban existence. But that is for a relatively few The working class still lived in these villages. Their housing related to uh, where they worked. They usually walked to work. Incidentally, in the the iron steel villages of the West Midlands, that was still true in 1965. The vast amount of um, travel to work by laboring people, by working class people, was actually by foot uh, or by bicycle. Uh, Even as late as that. And if you wanted to travel, the form of getting on your bike, to quote Lord Tebbit, the form of getting on your bike to find labor uh, was actually to walk. Uh, Joseph Arch, the um, creator of an agricultural trade union in the 1870s, in the 1840s and 1850s in search of work as a carpenter, as I think he was, Uh, walked all the way around Warwickshire and Oxfordshire and Worcestershire and Herefordshire looking for work. That was the form of getting on your bike uh, in that age. It was a rapidly reading age. It was a rapidly enriching age, creation of the popular press and also uh, the expansion of gross national product. Between 1851 and 1871, the gross national income probably doubled of the country, which accounted for the relative stability in those years compared with those of the 1830s and 1840s. And this was an age of low taxation, of course, when a a middle class could get relatively well-to-do very rapidly because of the lack of significant income and capital taxes and certainly no mechanisms for redistributing incomes or moderating the effects of the market um, on income. But note, too, the uncertainty that faced the middle classes just as much 
as the working classes. There is a splendid etching which is on the wall of one of my colleagues' rooms uh, in the Department of the Environment, which is a, an etching of the day from, uh, the, um, from pa of Paddington Station. And a, a very early train is waiting to go out, and there are all sorts of people on the platform. The interesting thing about it is the number of people having writs apparently served on them. As one of my colleagues pointed out, he clearly hadn't paid his community charge. So that is the general political background, but the religious context is just as much as import of importance. And I believe that here, this uh, society is far more remote from us. We, we understand this so little, it seems to me, because the religious changes have been so great. This is a period of religious revival. In 1851, something between 47 and 54 percent of the population were in church on the last Sunday of March, 1851. Now, the Victorians were scandalized by that, that it was so low. We would be inclined to say they should have been so lucky to have found so many, such a proportion of the population in church uh, then. But it certainly caused Shaftesbury to respond by saying, as it did many others, we have to do something about evangelizing the working classes. We have to do something about reaching them. And Shaftesbury's solution was to create the idea of theater services uh, in what we would now call the West End. Much to, scandalous to Anglicans of his day, the idea of having religious services even on Sunday evenings in a theater and outside the confines of the parish structure. This was scandalous to many Anglicans of his day, and indeed he had to uh, seek to defend it in Parliament and indeed required legislation to some extent uh, to uh, achieve it. This is an age, too, in which church membership, as distinct from attendance between 1801 and 1851, probably increased by some 3 or 4 percent of the population, from about 12 or 13 percent to 16 or 17 percent of the population. Membership increased by those proportions, notwithstanding the growth of the, uh, of the population itself. And this is a period of evangelical revival. We think of the great age of evangelical revival as being the Wesleyan period, which you uh, thought about a week or two ago. But in fact, that was confined still to a relatively small part of the population. Wesleyanism, I think, was some, only some 100,000 or so members of the of population, which I mentioned just now, in, 18, in 1793, when Wesley died. The great period of evangelical growth was, in fact, with the second and third evangelical revivals, depends how you classify it, in the early part of the 19th century, which touched not only Methodism but Anglicanism and old descent, Congregationalism and Presbyterianism uh, and the Baptists as well. The enormous uh, growth uh, of revival which touched every part of the population and enabled this bucking of the population trend to take place. This was a religious age. This was the Christian century as far as um, uh, England and Wales were concerned. It was a period too, however, of Catholic revival, particularly in the universities, particularly in Oxford, Tractarianism as it was called and then 
the Anglo-Catholic movement within the established church and within the body politic, leading in some cases to some spectacular defections to Roman Catholicism, but certainly perceived by evangelicals and perceived by Shaftesbury very much as a threat to evangelicalism, a threat to the gospel, a threat to the work of God. And uh, quite a large proportion of his uh, time was spent as the opponent of Anglo-Catholicism. It was also a period of Roman Catholic growth in particular. This was a combination of disaster in Ireland and the need to seek labor for many Irish people elsewhere. Uh, It was really the product of the Irish immigration that took place uh, to take advantage of the work opportunities on the canals and railways that existed in the early uh, 19th century. And there had not been an immigration on the scale of this since Huguenot times, and uh, it far exceeded that scale. And so although there had been an old, hidden Roman Catholic church, the recusant church that you can Write, re- read about in the, late, the early 20th century in Evelyn Waugh's novels, though there had been this strand of old Roman Catholicism, the new Catholic Church was essentially an Irish church. And it was... Um, it, uh, it uh, established a denominational structure, of, um, diocesan structure, rather in 1850 uh, and 51. And it produced enormous fears and tensions among the Protestant majority of the country, the same kind of fears and tensions that immigration usually produces, particularly perhaps economic immigration usually produces in any society. It was a period increasingly of a growth of intellectual secularism with the utilitarians, and people like Matthew Arnold, the influence of the German theological schools of theological liberalism beginning to penetrate through the universities, something that Shaftesbury called, and it was a a hated enemy of his, he called it, uh, I don't know how he pronounced it, actually, neologism, I suppose he pronounced it, neology, the idea of a new word, I suppose, was what was meant. Um, This was... I don't think we, we now really recognize the contest, the sharpness of the content, contact, contest between uh, secular thinking and Christian thinking in the 19th century when Christian thinking was very much the norm. Finally, it was a period of enormous religious division. We should not underestimate the importance of these religious divisions in three ways. An enormous division between Protestants and Catholics. There was one thing that, that even broad churchmen could be persuaded to unite with uh, uh, Anglican evangelicals and with dissenters about, and that was about opposing Roman Catholicism. Though we don't like to say it and mention it too loudly, the reason the Evangelical Alliance was created in 1847 was to oppose Catholicism principally and the the grants particularly to uh, grants, government grants from taxpayers to the, the Catholic Church of Ireland for the education of priests. That was one of the principal causes of its creation. 
Secondly, there was a deep division between high and low church in Anglicanism. And it produced a set of, uh, of wars, two particular wars at the practical level. The war to uh, get control of livings, of the livings of clergymen, which were part of uh, property, a property right, and what societies were, societies were formed on both parts to buy up these livings so as to be able to put your sort of person into them. Very sensible uh, tactic and strategy uh, at the time. And that is, we, we laud the foundation of the Church Pastoral Aid Society. It was founded to conduct this kind of acquisition, this kind of war. And, of course, the high church did it on the other side just as much. And it pr produced appointment wars. Shaftesbury was deeply involved in these appointment wars, and he had a particular opportunity in the period 1855 to 65 in, in order to get good evangelicals, as he saw it, into deaneries and into bishoprics across the country. And finally, it was a a time of deep division between Anglicanism, between the established church and religious dissent. And we misunderstand if we do not realize the depth of the fault line that ran across evangelicalism in the 19th century, the fault line between Anglicanism and dissent. It has almost disappeared in our generation. But unless we realize how deep it was and how closely it was related to political issues on the part of dissent because of the relationship to uh, political rights. After all, dissenters had a legal obligation by church rates to support the established church until quite late in the 19th century, could not bury their dead except in an Anglican uh, cemetery uh, until quite late in the 19th century. And these were very important divisions. They counted, they mattered, they created um, uh, one part of the Liberal Party, in fact, through the disabilities of dissent, and they went very deep. And it meant that there were different approaches, particularly to the issue of education, as I hope we shall see in a moment, and produced school building wars between dissent and Anglicanism. There were two societies, the National Society and the British School Society, who, who were, which were devoted to building schools faster than the other group in order to be able to educate your, the children of dissent or the children of Anglicanism in the way things ought to be. Now that's some of the background against which Shaftesbury was operating and um, which, uh, as I've drawn in from time to time, showed you some of the interests and explain perhaps some of the interests that Shaftesbury had. Let's turn now uh, quite briefly to his career before I turn to um, and assess more of an assessment. I think I'll just leave that up because that is mainly facts, which I will try to move through quite quickly. Tedious, you know, facts in history, but they are quite important, a bit difficult um, to have a, a history without um, a few facts. As you see, born Anthony Ashley Cooper in 28th of April 1901, 
He was the first son of the sixth Earl of Shaftesbury. His mother was Lady Anne Spencer, who was daughter of the fourth Earl of Marlborough. So although both families were actually relatively recently arrived from the gentry to the aristocracy, certainly he was born into a deeply landed and aristocratic fam- family. His father was a minor Tory ministry during the, minister during the Napoleonic Wars and it was eventually chairman of committees in the House of Lords in the 1840s. He was educated, as you see, at Harrow and partly privately. He was said by one of his contemporaries to be an extremely diligent student. We should certainly expect that of the alcoholic, workaholic Shaftesbury. Sorry, it's the same, it's the same kind of problem. Uh, you, you understand there is a psychologically very similar uh, sort of difficulty. He was basically a linguist. Um, he w- took a first in classics. Didn't mean very much, I don't think, in Oxford in the 1820s, but he took a first uh, in classics, um, and he went on a grand tour of Europe. Must have been one of the last politicians who ever, ever did that kind of thing. De rigueur for a politician of the 18th century, um, certainly not for a politician of the 19th century. He certainly was a linguist. He learned Welsh. One of these tedious persons went on holiday for a month in Wales in 1827 and learned Welsh. Uh, and was very concerned, actually, for the evangelization of the Welsh in Welsh and the Irish in Irish. He took part uh, in something called the London Irish Society, which was about the evangelization of Ireland in the Irish language. He entered Parliament in 1826 as Tory MP for Woodstock. Now, Woodstock was a rotten borough. You will remember that much, perhaps, from your... Uh, school history, however far ago it was, Um, you'll remember that it was a rotten borough, uh, that is to say it was in the gift of his wife's family, the Earls of Marlborough, they decided effectively who would be MPs for Woodstock. He had an exceedingly bad relationship with both his father and mother, and that lasted throughout his father's life till his father's death in 1851. He once wrote, what a dreadful woman our mother is. Her whole pleasure is in finding fault. And of his father, he said, as to friendship and affection between him and me, years of experience have sufficiently proved that outward civility and only civility is the utmost that can be looked for. His whole pleasure is in finding fault. He often abuses than censures. And the only affection that he got in his early life was probably from his evangelical, probably evangelical housekeeper uh, who looked after him, Maria Millis. Um, His father kept him on very short money throughout his early life. He complained about uh, his lack of money, but certainly his upbringing probably um, uh, accounted for the enormous sense of personal inadequacy he had throughout his life. He was sensitive, he was anxious for his qualities and achievements to be recognized, he lacked self-confidence, he had a poor self-image, he was ambitious, and as I said, he was a workaholic. He didn't have to earn his living in the sense that he was a man of means, uh, not very great means in his early life, and when he came into the earldom in 1851, he found it totally encumbered by debts and mortgages. I don't think Uh, He was a very good manager of uh, his financial affairs, in fact, but generally didn't accept 
uh, office for public pay. Now, he became an evangelical comparatively late in his life, probably influenced in the mid-1830s, in fact, probably influenced by reading the memoirs of Hannah More in the autumn of 1834. But even in October 1825, he was writing, I have a great mind to found a policy upon the Bible. In public life, observing the strictest justice, and not only cold justice, but an active benevolence. I think becoming an evangelical and committing himself to the evangelical idea in the mid-1830s, I think the sense, of, the, the sense of cold justice from scripture in political matters began more and more actually to fade away, and the idea of sentiment or active benevolence became more and more important. Interestingly, too, very soon after becoming an evangelical, he was converted to premillennialist thinking about the second coming. Almost all evangelicals up to that date had been post-millennialists. They believed that it was human action which was going to bring in the kingdom of God. He, he took up a very clear premillennialist position in which the world was not going to be really improved by um, human political action or any other kind of action. The kingdom was going to be established by the Lord at his second coming. Yet, nevertheless, despite his premillennialism, he gave himself to this tremendous social activity, as the rest of the church did, and as many, many premillennialists at the time did as well. Now, I'm one of those who thinks that premillennialism, and I come from that theological tradition, I think it impaired, it was one of the factors which destroyed evangelical social work uh, and social action and social reform as the 19th and early 20th, early 20th century wore on. It destroyed it because if everything was put off to the future and this world was being destroyed and going down, what is the point of doing anything in this life? That was not the view that Shaftesbury held, nor vast numbers of premillennialist evangelicals like uh, Bernardo and uh, the Guinness, uh, the, the Grattan Guinness uh, family, for example. Notwithstanding that view, they gave themselves to this enormous, and I'll touch on it in a moment, this enormous endeavor of social action. He married in, eight, the eight, in 1830, and he married the fifth, the, a woman who was apparently, I say apparently, the fifth daughter of Earl Cooper. Almost certainly she was the illegitimate daughter of Palmerston, and this was not without its value for building the kingdom of God uh, subsequently to... Uh, Shaftesbury, because it meant that when Palmerston was Prime Minister, not only did Palmerston help him out with his debts on occasions, but when Palmerston was Prime Minister, as he was for two long periods between 1855 and 1865, he had, as it were, only to pick up the telephone and he could get the ecclesiastical appointments that he wanted, uh, thanks to the power of the Prime Minister in such matters. And it came in handy with his wars with the Tractarians on these matters. He considered himself, I am sure, 
throughout his political career as a loyal Tory, though in reality he was increasingly an independent member of parliament who rested on his own personal reputation. Furthermore, although he began life with ambitions of political office, and he did indeed hold some offices, as you see from the overhead projection slide, though he held some offices uh, early in his career, he proved, I think, not to be a particularly good minister of the crown or administrator, and he certainly didn't uh, retain the confidence of his supporter, Peel, who came from a good evangelical family, by the way, though he had no, I think, particularly strong commitment himself. And Peel came increasingly to see Shaftesbury as someone who could manage his relations, his Peel's relations, with the young Queen Victoria, principally, a useful aristocrat who had a line in to the young Queen and could counteract the influence of uh, Melbourne when he was Prime Minister, Liberal Prime Minister, who had enormous influence with the young Queen. He was probably a pretty poor speaker in Parliament. There's plenty of evidence of that. He thought that he was a poor speaker, and I think other people thought that he was a rather poor speaker too, despite the fact that there can have been fewer people who made more speeches either in Parliament or certainly outside it as the uh, century or as, as his life went on. And his legislative success was achieved really in spite of his being rather a poor speaker and certainly in spite of his at times rather tactless handling of government ministers. I would not like to have received some of the letters that Shaftesbury wrote if I were an administrator or a minister and I certainly wouldn't have liked to have read some of the things he wrote in his diary about uh, political figures. Um, for example, Gladstone came in for quite a bit of stick uh, in um, Shaftesbury's diaries, uh, principally because he was a high churchman, of course, and therefore uh, extremely suspect. That was um, a brief outline to, to give you an outline of his career. Let's look now at some of his activities. Um, again, I hope reasonably briefly. I think his activities fall into three categories, though the important thing is to realize that, um, that there was no division. For Shaftesbury, this was part of one whole. People in our generation, like Harry Blamires, who, who have argued for the Christian mind and the re-establishment of the Christian mind, they may not have agreed with Shaftesbury, but I don't believe they could have faulted him in terms of having a united Christian mind in his understanding of the world. First of all, his religious activities. These were absolutely central to all that he was doing. Essentially, he was a kind of front man, really, a front man for a wide range of religious and philanthropic bodies in, in an age which saw the first accelerated development of the charitable body or the parachurch body as the vehicle of lay activity apart from formal church or state or denominational bodies. And the range of his interests in these multi 
this great multiplicity of bodies which particularly evangelicalism created in the early 19th century, the range was surprising. Even in the religious sphere, it was surprising in terms of the, the range of bodies in which he was involved, both in terms of home mission and in foreign mission. Some of these were denominational. For years and years, for almost all his life, he was president of the Church Pastoral Aid Society from its foundation in 1836. His involvement was with the Church Missionary Society, with bodies such as the Church of England's Young Men's Society for Aiding Missions at home and abroad. They did not believe in short, snappy titles on the whole um, in, the, in the Victorian era. And these are just examples of the many different kinds of bodies, some which had a continuing existence and some which came into existence for a particular purpose and then ceased to exist after a while. And interestingly, it included interdenominational bodies. I think this is an important way in which Shaftesbury reflected the future rather than the past. Despite his Toryism, despite his commitment to the established church, despite his, his desire to protect the established church as a, a bastion of uh, society, nevertheless he increasingly found himself at home and committed himself to societies which were interdenominational in character, either in terms of mission or in terms uh, of uh, foreign mission, that is, or in terms of home mission of evangelism. That is the voluntary side, the involvement in societies. But there was also an involvement uh, in church matters, religious matters, legislatively. In the 1870s, he turned himself to the problem of high church vestments and church courts and, uh, and high church liturgy. He turned himself to legislative solutions with the assistance of others, turned himself to, to legislative barriers to these developments. And we've already noted his administrative influence, particularly in church appointments. But then there were two these philanthropic um, activities. And these philanthropic activities again fell into three categories. There were the official ones, the equivalent of this administrative influence that I spoke of in the religious sphere. He had some official position. Interestingly, his first uh, legislative concern in 1828, very shortly after becoming an MP, was with the issue of lunacy, and he helped get some two new lunacy statutes onto the statute book. He was not the initiator, but he helped it. And as a result, he was made a commissioner of the commission set up, commission into lunacy, particularly in the metropolitan area initially, commission set up to implement one of these acts, which was particularly about containing the amount of wrongful detention for lunacy and the amount of profit which was being made privately out of this possibly wrongful detention for lunacy, as well as the standards in um, lunatic houses of one kind or another. He remained a commissioner of that commission virtually throughout his life. Can you imagine retaining such a position, an, an active position as a, a public functionary throughout his life 
being concerned about conditions uh, in, the asylum, in asylums. And he was recognized by Victorian society as being a great authority on uh, lunacy. He had these other uh, positions which uh, are mentioned. Um, we, we actually sorry, may not have done an overhead on this. He had uh, some, a few other positions in of an official kind. But in fact, his occupation of official office was comparatively slight. His influence throughout his career was really as a legislator and as an animator of charitable societies. And his legislative interests were prodigious. First of all, in between 1833 and 1847, particularly in factory legislation, and he took up, he was not the inventor of it, he took up the cause of the Tory Michael Sadler, who was pressing the cause before he lost his seat in the election following the Great Reform Act, the cause of limiting work in factories, particularly for women and children, to 10 hours per day. And Shaftesbury was taken up in the absence of Sadler. Shaftesbury was asked to promote the bill in the next Parliament. In fact, he stuck at the issue uh, for something like 15 years before he eventually fell out with those who he was acting as the front person for. And he fell out because he thought he'd got a better deal, which involved a ten and a half day, uh, ten and a half hour day, but a limitation of the opening of factories to 12 hours between 6 a.m and 6 p.m. Previously, they had been allowed to be open for 15 hours. He thought this deal was worth having, but it caused him to fall out with his, uh, those who, whom he was acting as the front man for in Parliament. And it's interesting that he wasn't directly involved in that issue. Th those provisions were enacted in 1847. And it's interesting that he didn't then deal with the factory issue thereafter, but he did deal with all sorts of fringe activities in other ways which were not covered by the factory acts, the issues such as chimney sweeps, uh, anything that involved the labor of women, particularly uh, young females. And it is interesting that his concern in factory activity uh, and in employment activity was particularly directed toward the conditions of women and children and young people in urban areas and in manufacturing industry. Somebody pointed out to him in the midst of this campaign, why aren't you so interested in the conditions of your agricultural laborers on your estates who were probably almost uh, in as seriously difficult set of circumstances. And I do think it is true to say that some of Shaftesbury's interest and that of evangelicals generally was in a sense with the new problem with which they were not familiar in social activity rather than the old problems with which they were very familiar. I think we needn't register that as a criticism. I have a suspicion that we are, as, we are not so concerned about the problems we know about and are used to as the problems which appear to us uh, as new problems. That was his legislative activity. It continued throughout his career. And yet, um, 
increasingly in his career, he moved towards voluntary action through these voluntary bodies, and I give some examples on the overhead projection slide, voluntary activities to do something about social action, to, to do something on the ground about social problems, as well as, to reform, as well as social reform. And it's important that we should understand the sheer scale of evangelical activity on this front. It was not just Shaftesbury. In a sense, Shaftesbury was representative. He was the front man. But the multiplicity of bodies, which were for social action and social reform, and, and this is an important and, and the preaching of the gospel. The two things were seen as absolutely intertwined. They were not in the business, and Shaftesbury was not in the business, as we'll see in a moment. Shaftesbury was not in the business of um, just of social reform for social reform's sake. Fundamentally, he had two objectives. He believed that there was no way that unless social conditions were improved, there was no way in which people could live morally, in a morally acceptable way, and no way in which they could respond to the gospel. And so that was, he was driven by that concern. And if we don't understand that that was one of the fundamental motivations of evangelical social action in the 19th century, we shall not have understood social action by evangelicals in the early 19th century. The concern was as much religious and moral as it was simply with the conditions in which uh, people uh, found themselves. As I've indicated, it is extremely hard to distinguish his religious from his philanthropic activities. Now I said I would leave myself too little time at the end, and so I have done. I want to refer quite briefly to what was Shaftesbury. Well, first of all, and increasingly so as the 19th century went on, and par excellence, he was an evangelical Christian. If you want to understand Shaftesbury, it must be as a Christian and an evangelical Christian. He wrote, he said in 1840, all hopes are groundless, all legislation weak, all conservatism nonsense without this alpha and omega of policy. The alpha and omega of policy was the building of churches and the sending out of ministers of the gospel. In other words, that was his his fundamental purpose, around which everything else was rotating. This lay behind his philanthropic activity, his belief that if people lived in chaos, poverty, and drudgery, that, that they would be morally destroyed by it and virtually incapable of coming to Christ and of living the Christian life. And it lay behind uh, all sorts of aspects of uh, his policy both of a religious kind and of a national kind. I won't uh, list the examples that I was going to give there. Firstly, an evangelical Christian. And then secondly, a Protestant Christian. I've dwelt on this a little bit already. In 1841, he wrote, the battle that evangelical religion is now sustaining, he referred to, the battle that evangelical religion is now sustaining against popery 
the religion of Christ against the religion of human nature. In 1842, he told the Church Pastoral Aid Society that it was a body to protest against all heresy and schisms, whether they be presented under the gorgeous mantle of Romanism or under the more insinuating garb of Anglo-Catholicity. And this was before the defection of Newman and others to the Church of Rome. He was, thirdly, an Anglican, very much bound up in advancing the cause of the established church, committed to protecting the established church. But he became increasingly, as his life went on, increasingly open to the contribution of dissent to achieving the objectives which he had in mind. And indeed, some of his closest friends towards the end of his life, after the death of his wife in the early 1870s, some of his closest friends were in fact dissenters. If he looked for companionship, he sought it. Opportunities were not great. He sought it with Charles Haddon Spurgeon by preference often to uh, others uh, from his own uh, Anglican tradition. He was certainly an anti-intellectual and an anti-secularist despite his obvious uh, intellectual ability himself. His anti-intellectualism was displayed, and I think rightly displayed, actually, in the influence that he sought to exercise over Palmerston in the appointment of bishops. He was anxious that Palmerston should uh, appoint pastors rather than scholars to uh, episcopal uh, appointments. And he was certainly very much the anti-secularist in his opposition to state-controlled education. In 1870, on the first National Education uh, Act promoted by the liberals, he, wrote a, he talked about schools founded on the rates and fierce hatred of denominational teaching will prove to be, in nine cases out of ten, vast factories for infidelity. Now there's a, an echo for the 20th century, uh, if ever I saw one. An echo, interestingly perceived by the greatest, by the, almost say the greatest, one of the most distinguished popularizers of secularism that there was. That was Matthew Arnold. Do you remember Matthew Arnold's poem on Dover Beach? He talks about the ignorant armies of the night, or clashing by night. The poem is based, it was written on his honeymoon, actually. It was a rather depressing poem to write on his honeymoon. But... Uh, he had this idea of Dover Beach and he heard the waves and he talked about the vast receding sea of faith and he talks about the ignorant armies clashing by night. Matthew Arnold saw where secularism would lead even though he was himself a secularist. And certainly Shaftesbury was totally and utterly opposed to this and it was why he was opposed to national education, the idea of the state being involved at all uh, in uh, education, and I'm not sure that he ever really accepted before his death in 1885 that state education had come to last. He said of his teachers in his ragged schools, if your schools subsist, you must give them more and more of a religious character. You must endeavor to catch the children when they come out of the secular furnaces and bring them under the influence of the gospel. I think that's something which perhaps only in 
as, the, as Christians in our own day, we've come to see perhaps the significance of that. He was also a, a conservative. Now, what I would want to assert that he began as a, as a conservative, he began as a paternalist, but increasingly through his life, he became more and more a pragmatist, more and more an independent, more and more in some things committed to voluntary action, in some things committed to state action. And I, uh, let me illustrate this. In schools, he was against state intervention and for the idea that it should be the responsibility of, of religion to educate. But when it came to the health of towns, when it came to sewers and water supply, and indeed when it came to lunacy, he was against private enterprise. He was for the action of the state in the provision of these things. Uh, lest I be drawn into political uh, comment, I shall perhaps resist all temptation to comment on this. But essentially, it's another illustration of how he made his Christian profession the center of his politics. If he was opposed to state education because of what it meant in terms of secularism, in terms of educating children in, in infidelity, as he put it. He was for the action of the state when it came to water supply uh, and factories because he saw that as the, the only real means in which the problem could be solved and he couldn't see a religious objection to that and indeed he could see a religious advantage for the reasons that I have already given. In some ways, it seems to me, finally, that he was something of an enigma and a contradiction. Actually, what I believe is that increasingly through his life, though he did not himself recognize it, he became increasingly a classical 19th century liberal. That this process this political process in which he took part, more and more the political issues that he took up at home and abroad, uh, abroad and at home were the issues which liberals rather than conservatives were taking up at the time, though he never himself recognized or, or renounced his position uh, as a, a conservative. Interestingly, Gladstone followed exactly the same path. I'm not sure that Shaftesbury ever recognized it because Gladstone was an Anglo-Catholic and he was an evangelical. But the path and their position on issues was frequently more or less exactly the same, except that I suspect that Shaftesbury allowed more for state intervention uh, in things like water supply than Gladstone himself did. I believe that we see religion and morality, business and public policy intimately intertwined in Shaftesbury's career. In resisting a bill to allow a private water company to supply London in May 1850, he wrote, it was overwhelming, heartbreaking, 
awful to reflect how many thousands are deprived in this Christian city of the prime requisite for health, comfort, decency, of an essential prop and handmaid for morality. Seems to me that you see there the practicalities of Victorian improvement of the sewers and of the water supply with the notion of a Christian city and the idea of decency, of physical health, an essential prop and handmade for morality. These three things joined together. Let me leave you with some last words. It seems to me that this is what he wrote to, or wrote to his biographer, Edwin Hodder, his official biographer. He said this, he wrote this to him about how he was to use his diaries. I only hope that if any ever, nobody will, but if ever anybody came to write my own biography on my own diaries, I don't keep any diaries, so I'm safe. I hope that I could have their objectivity to write as he wrote and instructed his biographer about himself and how they were to be used and what he might have achieved. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, we've had a real tour de force, and uh, I'm sure we've learned a great deal, not only about uh, Shaftesbury, but about his times. There are a few minutes left for questions and comments um, and I hope we'll take some opportunity just to use that time. We'll leave that on the screen as well for a while so you can read it at your leisure. Anyone like to uh, make a comment or, or, or put a question? Yes. How early in his life was Shaftesbury converted? I find that a very difficult question to answer. Um, we have just had a report from the Bible Society on how people come to faith. And what we discover from that report is that even among evangelicals, very many people take quite a long time to come to faith. That sudden conversion is, is, le is, is, less the, is not the norm. The norm is a gradual conversion. Um, even for, for people who we regard as committed evangelical Christians... And I think uh, Shaftesbury, to my mind, fell into that category. Um, I quoted something from him in 1826, which sounds pretty evangelical. Um, as I say, the biographers say that he committed himself to evangelicalism um, in 1834, when he was, what, 33, I think, or thereabouts. Perhaps it was more that he committed him, less that he became a Christian then, than that he committed himself at that stage to a biblical Christianity, which would became the, what one would define as the norm for evangelicalism of the time. I suspect that that is the better way to see it. I do suspect that he was a believer uh, in Christ rather earlier than that. <coughs> Uh, you mentioned, I think, if I remember rightly, that you, you were a bit puzzled that there was no mention of trade unionism. Mm -hmm. um, 
may well be precisely because the, the working classes who after all the very chaotic conditions come from agriculture into the factory system into the mines due to the enclosure system affecting agriculture therefore had no educated means of protecting themselves and Palmer's, uh, and Shastri was after all a member of the parliamentary classes where most laws are passed to preserve the interests of the parliamentary classes but the fact that he started this remarkable reform in factory mining conditions and defense of the interests of people I, I would like to feel that he initiated a realization on the part of working class people that there was a means through parliamentary involvement and eventually penetration to go on improving the conditions and I, I, I would I, I, you persuaded me to believe that trade unionism in its best form is a, is a continuation of Shaftesbyism and that he initiated whatever ulterior motives he might have had but I don't think he had many well, I think he initiated the vision yeah I think well, you're, what, was he a bit frightened of the working classes when he wasn't too keen on state education I, I think it's absolutely true that he was frightened of the working classes, um, that he saw them as a great threat to the state and to the established order and to the established church and the uh, state itself. And with some good reason, actually, despite the fact that his biographers don't mention it, and I'm not sure that it was mentioned in his journals, but the, the 1820s and 1830s were a time of enormous rural uh, upheaval with um, Luddism and you know, transportation to Australia as being the, um, the penalty for that, breaking of machines, burning, captain swing. Now, that was a rural discontent. Interestingly, as I say, not mentioned uh, by him. But of course, in the 1840s, there was a whole great movement of Chartism, which was highly democratic, wanted annual parliaments. There were seven points, annual parliaments were one of them. And he saw that as a tremendous threat and I'm sure he saw improvement of factory conditions as a means of heading off that threat and defending the social order. He was very conscious about the importance of defending the social order. And he saw Christianity as having a dual purpose, both of defending the social order uh, here and of ensuring the salvation of the, uh, those who were to be orderly, as it were, uh, ultimately uh, in salvation. You're quite right about trade unionism. Of course, there were combination acts which control trade unionism from the early 19th century but more than that until the 1880s precisely because of the reason that I was giving um, uh, most trade unions were comparatively small unions of craft people of the, of the best of the working class of the artisans they were comparatively small they were very conscious of their professional skills compared with the, the, the navvies the, uh, and day laborers. Uh, and it wasn't until 1885, really, that you got mass trade unionism, which was really the, the consequence, partly of giving the, the, urban, the, the rural and all the working class a vote, uh, males, that is, uh, but, but partly also the creation of much larger factories, which gave the opportunity for... Uh, mass trade unionism so I think that's why he didn't write about it because trade unions were not politically particularly significant for the whole of his 
period. Um, whether your final question, um, whether trade unionism was drew from Shaftesbury's in, uh, inspiration, well, perhaps to some extent, though actually in the birth of trade unionism, Methodism was much more important than uh, evangelical Anglicanism. In an unconscious way, and there are, there are tremendous airs of influence that can never be written down, but which we recognise mm. once we've read something about it. Possible. Can you explain a little bit more fully um, what you meant by saying that um, social reform would help people live more morally? I think the, the early 19th century evangelicals saw a lot of things that were going on in factories, in mines, which they were extremely unhappy about, especially for young people and uh, women and girls. And they didn't fit with their model of the kind of things that, that children, young women, girls should be doing. I mean, I'm not being critical about that. They, they didn't fit. And I think they, they actually thought, Shaftesbury thought, there was an element of, of approaching it in this way. The people had no alternative but to live in, a, in an immoral fashion. They were being presented with no alternative. And therefore, it was important to improve their physical conditions so that they wouldn't, as it were, have immorality and degradation, as they put it, imposed upon them by the system. Um, so that I, I think there were some elements of um, what you might describe as, I suppose, a traditional Christian, evangelical anyway, agenda in all this, um, which were not, not actually very far away from problems of sexual morality, actually, which, which caused them to think that these conditions impose this immoral behavior on people, and therefore, if the conditions were improved, they wouldn't have to live like that. Does that help? Mm. You, yes. you pointed out that many of the improvements in society came from the non-secular -sec section. And you pointed out also that there is a reversal of that situation today. The religious evangelical section of society is small. The secular society is strong. How do you see the future developing? If the source of help and improvement is small, I know it's possibly a hypothetical question and also it's based on, 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 on your personal feeling. But what is your personal feeling? Well, it's very, I mean, much, we, <coughs> it's very much a political question. What, what are my personal feelings about it? Hmm. I think it's extremely difficult to turn the clock back. I mean, the, the idea that we could have a largely voluntarist society, and indeed there were plenty of Christians, obviously Shaftesbury was one of them, who thought 
the idea that voluntary charitable action could deal with all the social problems of society. I mean, Shaftesbury didn't believe that was true. He was against it in education because of its religious consequences. It was, as I said, it was not against the action of the state in other areas if he believed there wouldn't be religious consequences uh, from that action. I mean, the idea that we can turn the clock back to me is, I mean, actually you're arguing about the margin. I mean, the idea that we could vastly reverse, um, for example, measures which are intended to produce a more equal distribution of income, for example, in society, for a start. I don't believe democracy will ever put up with it. Shaftesbury was an opponent of democracy, precisely because he was among those like Badgett who saw that democracy would result in the auctioning of pledges, you know, and 3% mortgages and 9% mortgages to produce two examples from, our, from the past, political past of most of us in this room. You know, he thought that democracy was a bad thing because it encouraged politicians to make promises they couldn't deliver. Uh, or which, uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, it, and in fact that is true. I mean, without a vast redistribution of income in society, um, I mean, I don't think society will put up with that. Uh, and it would, would be going back an enormous distance. What we're actually arguing about is at the margin, you know, as to whether there are some things that can be done better by voluntary action rather than others. And I think it's around that margin that, that the debate will take place. There you are, a good civil servant's answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, we must call a halt, at least formally. It's almost quarter past nine. And